0: From across the globe, from the centre of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading the Aero Society podcast from the Royal Aeronautical Society. So, it's, it's a great pleasure for me to uh, uh, introduce our speakers this evening. Uh, this technology which we're about to hear about is very interesting, and from the Green by Design Group's perspective, uh, anything that... Uh, lowers the impact uh, on the environment of of aviation is is something worth looking at. Um, uh, The Green by Design Group itself is organizing a conference um, the 21st of October. I'll mention this again at the end of the the lecture. So please uh, pick up uh, flyers for that that are on the reception desk outside. Um, And it's important that uh, uh, we, we attack this issue on the environment. It's going to come back to hit the industry, I think, continually in the future. And then, as I say, any technological developments uh, that, that aid us in that task uh, are welcome. So, without further ado, I'd like to uh, introduce Chris Daniels, who's, uh, as it says at the bottom there, Head of um, Partnership and Communications uh, at Hybrid Air Vehicles. And they are responsible for the Airlander which you see there, and um, just wait for colleagues to sit down and settle, um, and we're going to hear from Chris, but also his colleague Andy, it's a two-speaker it's a 2 speaker, um, lecture, and for the size of that vehicle, I think we need two speakers. Um, so, with uh, no further ado, over to you, Chris. Thank you.
1: Um, I'll explain why there's two of us, first of all. So, um, In effect, like many aerospace companies, there's a a yin and yang between sort of engineering and business and between theory and practice. So I very much represent the kind of more financial business side of things. Andy definitely represents the um, engineering side of things. Um, I happen to have a mathematical degree background. Andy has got an aeronautical engineering background. He's also a fellow of the Society And so, hopefully, we'll bring a little bit of both sides of the business. So, I'm sort of theory and he's practice. Um, You'll also see a camera in the corner, which may go at odds with do not take films here. So, Dean is a documentary filmmaker, um, has got many um, reasonably well-known documentaries to his credit, um, including The Beagle 2, kind of Land on Mars project, he did the documentary for that. He's following us, doing a slight fly-on-the-wall documentary through to First Flight, so he sort of comes to the company every few weeks and just does a little bit, so um, he will ro- roam around the room towards the end, so don't be worried or concerned. He's, um, you might get yourself on a BBC documentary at some point. So without further ado, what we're aiming to do today is just talk about um, this huge aircraft. Um, That's the back of it, just so you understand the size of this, because the the hangar that that is in is basically 300 metres long and slightly dwarfs um, a 92 metre long aircraft. And to put that in context, a 747 is 76 metres long. This is 92 metres long, so the scale of this thing is enormous. It's very difficult, unless you actually see it in the flesh, to realise just how enormous and groundbreaking this is. And there's no small amount of engineering that goes into making an aircraft that size. So, we are hybrid air vehicles. We are a privately owned British company. We're an SME. We've got 35 employees, and. The reason we exist is to design and assemble this new future of aviation and we'll talk about why it's new, why it's innovative and why it's very green as we go through it. Um, And also we'll talk about how we think we're going to change the world of aviation through this. So it's a real groundbreaking, novel and disruptive to the industry um, business that we're in. why do we do hybrids? Why do they exist? Airships are very limited in their capabilities. They, they had a, a flurry of activity, really from the 1850s through to about the 1920s, 1930s. They've kind of carried on a little bit since then, but with any airship, they've got a very narrow range of lifting payloads, and one of the reasons why airships in the 1920s and 1930s was so huge was to make that range as wide as it could. Ground handling has always been difficult and th- there's no end of photos and film footage of hundreds of people literally grabbing ropes to pull airships to the ground. And it's no different, as you can see on the modern-day Goodyear blimp, um, where they have a ground crew of 15 to 20 people. And the smaller airships can be very weather So it's a bit like a yacht at sea. If you've got a very big boat, it's going to be less affected by waves than a much smaller craft. And it's exactly the same in airships, hence the ship bit of it. Hybrids solve all these issues. And so they make lighter-than-air technology viable. So they've got, as as a consequence of that, they've got an amazing endurance. They can carry heavy loads. They don't need many ground crew, and they've got very good all-weather characteristics. So let's go back to um, basic science, physics, Archimedes' principle. As I say to my... I've got two boys, seven and ten. I said, why does an airship or a balloon float in the sky? I say, because it's filled with helium. That makes it float. I said, no, 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 it's the... Physically, it's the displacement of the air that's caused by the volume of the helium that pushes it up. That's Archimedes' principle in a nutshell. So, if the total mass is bigger than displacement, mass, then you've basically got a heavy vehicle. If it's less, you've got a light vehicle. So, a light vehicle means it floats, and a heavy vehicle means it sinks. Our hybrid aircraft are heavy. And I think that's it's an important concept that Andy will probably mention. I'll mention the difference between heavy and light. The advantage of being heavy is you've got control. And also, you can put different amounts of payload in with a lot more ease. So it's a bit like, rather than a helium party balloon, think of a bird. A bird is heavy, but it's got very light bones inside and it can fly very easily. It only needs a couple of flaps of its wing to take off. So that's the same concept with a hybrid. It's just heavy, just heavier than air, but you put a little bit of wind over its airfoil, and it flies. There's three varieties of airship, rigid, semi-rigid, and non-rigid. So here is a classic old-style rigid, huge amounts of girders in there, and whether that's aluminium, um, different versions of dual aluminium or carbon composites, whatever you put in there, that's a lot of weight and a lot of um, structural rate. And inside that, they typically have gas bags, in the old days, hydrogen, nowadays, helium, and that would enable these um, rigid airships to float. Semi-rigid, typically, have just got a keel or they'll have some structure but not a total subject. And then you've got non-rigid, which is like ours, And you can see there, this is our um, half-inflated hybrid aircraft. There is no structure inside that. So it's really important to understand that. It's just the pressure of the gas inside that maintains its shape and the smart materials that allows it to stay in the same shape, whatever the conditions. So traditional airships have got large numbers, mentioned that we have less ground crew and so we land like conventional aircraft when we're heavy and we can power ourselves onto the ground when we're light so that's the heavy and light and the airlander 10 we use just two pieces of ground equipment it's very hard to see in this picture but just to see though you can see the size of people compared to the airship or the hybrid aircraft and the ground equipment is literally this tiny thing here and this tiny thing here. And so we've really solved a bunch of problems with old airships. So how do we fly? So we start off with this pressure-stabilised aircraft that's filled with helium apart from an area of air. As we go up, we pump that air up, as we come down, we push air into it. So I'll explain that diagrammatically. So at sea level, we've got a full ballonet of air. So as we go up, the outside air pressure is reduced. So we then release the air and the fabric sort of wrinkles down. and We use fans to push the air out. And then eventually at maximum height, we have no air. So it's pure helium. That's important for us because then there's always going to be a trade-off between the altitude we can go at and the amount of payload. And so that's a a constant um, kind of balancing act for us about what uses we can do. So we could fly with very heavy payload at lower altitude, or we can fly with very light payloads, let's like, say surveillance, communications equipment, at very high altitudes. So how do we actually work? We've got three methods of creating lift. One is a standard aerofoil aerodynamic lift. So about 40% of our lift comes from that wing shape. We can then get plus or minus 25% from um, thru- vectoring the propulsors, so pushing the air down or up. And so it's a bit like a Harrier jump jet, just funneling air down or up. To, and we can do vertical takeoff and landing if we need to, but similar to a Harrier jump jet, it's a bit more expensive in fuel compared to standard takeoff. And then finally, it's the buoyant lift to do with um, being filled with helium. So Multi-hull airship, we've invented it and we've patented it. We've got 21 different patents for our technology. So we, are, we know we're advanced in what we do. The vector thrust, as mentioned, enables VTOL and CTOL. The buoyancy makes the economics of flying very compelling. And we're typically 10 to 20% of the fuel burn of equivalent tasks for other aircraft, whether helicopters or aeroplanes. And that links us very much into the greener by design camp, and is what is getting politicians and the environmentalists very excited about this technology. Ground handling is simplified as aircraft is heavy, and I talk about weather vane. We, when we're on the mast, we move around with the wind, so we just sit around and just um, are directed by where the wind. When we're on the mast. And we've also, on the future version, so at the moment we've got a very simple skid system for landing and takeoff. On future versions we're going to get an air cushion landing system and we would then have a very effective cargo aircraft. So effectively you've got a hovercraft that lands on the ground, the um, engines, the hover engines push air out as you land and then the engines reverse when you're on the so it sucks it to the ground which makes for a very efficient um, way of turning around a cargo aircraft very quickly. We've been proven in 65 knots of wind and capable um, of aircraft operations in up to 80 knots, which is typically when airports and other types of aircraft start closing down anyway. So it is very, very um, weather capable. So one of the reasons why we've managed to Create a hybrid aircraft that's viable and is credible for the future is because of innovations in technology. So, I'll just run through sort of the five key ones and then I'm going to pass over to Andy, going to talk about a bit more of the history of where we come from and where we're going. So, we've got a smart material that was developed really for America, America's Cup sailing boats. So, it retains its shape. Um, at all times, and that allows the surface to be pressure stabilized and to maintain the shape of this aircraft, which is very important for its flight operations. Um, we use the very latest lightweight carbon composite and fiberglass um, material for basically anything that isn't the whole material. We've got a lot of IP about how we attach everything. In effect, we've got high-tech string and glue that attaches all these pieces to the surface of the aircraft. Okay, um, Carbon fibre um, for the fuel modules, the ducts, the mission module, etc. And then the skids at the moment have just got an abrasion resistant material that allows us to land and take off. So that's, that's the sort of brief science and the brief um, overview of what the aircraft is. And I'm going to Pass to Andy, who's our technical manager, to talk much more about where we've come from and where we're going, and also to save my voice, which is one of the other reasons why we're doing a double act. Thank you.
2: So, uh, after inventing the multi-hull or hybrid aircraft, or whatever, as we now call it, Airlander, the most significant event in our history was winning the U.S. Army LEMV program. So, that contract was awarded in June 2010. Um, the first flight. Which you'll see a little bit of uh, shortly was on August the 7th, 2012. That was in New Jersey at Lakehurst Air Force Base. Um, From around about February that year, if you follow your U.S. politics, there there was a breakdown in the budget planning in the U.S. between the Republican Party in Congress and President Obama and the Democrats. So from around February that year, there was the threat if they didn't agree after the election in the fall that there were going to be sequester automatic defence cuts of $454 billion, as well as lots of other cuts in US government. That came to pass, and during that year we were operating in, un, under the threat that that uh, might come, and therefore it was very important that we did proceed. And the normal military 80-20 maxim maximum applied, which was, if you've got 80% of the fact, functionality, go fly. Don't polish it, don't take a little bit more weight out we need to get flying. So there was very much a question of, let's make sure we do get that flight in. It was a little bit later than originally planned, but it was only 26 months after the contract was awarded. So as an engineering team, we were pretty pleased with that. Seeing that it was likely that along with many other US programs, the program was going to be canceled, the context of the aircraft was the number of servicemen and women losing their limbs out in Afghanistan. So the U.S. Army had a need to counter IEDs. Uh, There are other types of aircraft available where they didn't feel the aircraft mix, UAV mix and other aircraft mix they had properly addressed the ability to to see the IEDs in time to stop people being killed or injured by them. Um, So that's kind of what drove the need for the aircraft. Um, And... Part of what was going on at the same time as the budget crisis was there was a clear intent by President Obama to come out of Afghanistan a little earlier than planned and the purpose of this aircraft was to go to Afghanistan, operate from Kandahar Airport, stay in position for three weeks at a time so that we're not transient coming and going that it would be possible for the US army to keep a permanent watch over the road infrastructure in Afghanistan so they would know if someone planted an IED. They'd even have video footage of it, they could tell which vehicles or motorbikes or Jeeps or Toyota trucks they came in, who else they'd seen, and they, they could even sort of be able to mount a prosecution on the back of that they had signal intelligence and everything else. Um, so that was driving. It. So a combination of budget cuts and the political decision to exit Afghanistan early, we could see it likely that the project would be lost along with others. So we started working with help from uh, our friends in, and we particular credit to the uh, British embassy in Washington who were very helpful And the Ministry of Defence. A number of the uh, Royal Air Force staff went over and discussed this with their American colleagues what we said to them is, we don't want to happen what normally happens to cancelled programmes. We do not want this thing to be put in the hopper and turned into small bits of uh, round cubes or square cubes. What we wanted is to be able to carry on with the aircraft. So we offered to buy the aircraft. You can say it took a little while because there isn't a procedure for buying back an aircraft from a cancelled American military programme. So eventually... And credit to our CEO, Steve McGlennan, who was very persistent on this matter. Eventually, we persuaded them to put it on, effectively, U.S. Army surplus, and we were happily the highest bidder. So we were able to buy it um, and then planned to bring it back, and it came back into the hangar uh, late in 2013. Uh, we would have loved to have flown it all the way across the Atlantic. It's perfectly capable of flying across the Atlantic, but as you'll see, having only managed one flight at this stage, uh, the civil air, aviation authorities weren't about to allow us to fly across the Atlantic, even if the US engineers was agreed to do such a thing after just one first flight. Um, the other really bit good of news, and we, again, thanks to our American colleagues for this, is when we bought the aircraft, they agreed to take it off the military aircraft register, but at that stage, we're still under international traffic arms regulation control, so it's rather limited what we can do with the data we've got, with the flight data we've got, with all the drawings, and who we can talk to about the aircraft. So we applied for something called a commodity jurisdiction to the US State Department to say, this is not, we bought, we, what we bought was the aircraft, we didn't buy any of the sensor equipment, any of the radars, any of the surveillance of the signals intelligence, or the remote piloting, we just bought the aircraft. So said, this is an aircraft that we designed before you came along and awarded this contract. It's all our IP. We didn't cede any of the intellectual property to the U.S. Army as part of undertaking the project. So when we take it back, can we please reclassify it as a civil aircraft? And thank you very much, U.S. State Department. We were, in May this year, reclassified as a civil aircraft. And that helps us be a lot more open <coughs> today in what we can say. Let's go back to Afghanistan. You've got the IED threat. Um, What has the U.S. got to counter the IED threat? What you've got here on the axis down the bottom is speed. So you've got various UAV platforms in the U.S. inventory. Um, They have have a good speed, um, but they don't have a great endurance, a couple of days' endurance. Um, What we have as the Lemby aircraft is an aircraft with 21 days' endurance. So they concluded... Drones with just one or two days endurance couldn't counter the threat successfully. An aircraft of the endurance of the Lenvy, based on the Airlander 10, uh, that can change the situation in theatre. The size of the circles is the mass of the payload. Um, what's really important here isn't just our endurance, uh, which is ten times greater than the best UAV on the lower part of the, the diagram, but the combination of endurance and payload there's some absolutely wonderful solar planes flying around the world at the moment they've got absolutely terrific endurance but they can't carry very much to be useful for the US army and other uh, users we need to have a, a high payload as well as a long endurance and if you multiply the payload and the endurance together the lemby aircraft is 880 eight times better than the next best aircraft in the US inventory or anyone else's First flight was a fairly typical first flight, so the total envelope is 20,000 feet, we only went as high as 4,000 feet, the top speed is 80 knots, we only went as fast as 40 knots, we did fairly graceful turns as well, so sadly that wasn't enough for us to fly across the Atlantic after the, uh, when we bought the aircraft, we did need to pack it down and we're in the process of reassembling it inside the hangar at uh, Cardington at the moment. The only change between the aircraft we now have and the aircraft that flew in in America is it is now always manned, there is always a pilot on board. In the US Army use it's optionally piloted, so the plan was to fly across the the mid-Atlantic through Gibraltar, Cyprus out to theatre in Afghanistan and then operate on a remotely piloted basis from Kandahar Airport. Um, Our prime contractor was Northrop Grumman of the US and they had responsibility for all the mission systems and the remote piloting system. But everything to do with the aircraft, or the know-how, or the systems integration to the aircraft, that was all hybrid air vehicles. Time was of the essence, um, and uh, not unusually for an aircraft programme. A number of the items of equipment were overweight on the first aircraft and are still overweight. Um, So what that meant was that our endurance at 20,000 feet was limited. So that is actually a typo there. That should actually say 20,000 feet endurance there. Um, The conclusion of the army was this satisfies our 80% criteria. What we'll do, we'll operate at 16,000 feet. It gives us 14 days. That can counter the operational threat. So, yeah, crack on. What you've got is what we can use. Um, These are the other items of the specification in terms of electrical payload um, and also the speed we would operate at. The important thing to say is, and we planned and the US Army were fully aware of this, that we have got in our plans the necessary weight reductions to return this aircraft to its original spec. So the next aircraft we build will comply with the 21 days, 20,000 feet, 2,500 payload and 16 kilowatt electrical payload spec that we originally designed to. And we know exactly how to get that mass out to return to that. In terms of what we can offer as endurance today, we now need to factor in the fact that we need a pilot. We don't think from a human factors point of view we can put a pilot up in the air or a a series of shifts of pilots up in the air and fly the aircraft for 21 days. Someone's got to be doing the night shift. After four or five days, the fatigue factor is going to be significant. So whilst we can offer it, for instance, to the UK Ministry of Defence as a 21-day a remotely piloted platform, if it goes back into a military sphere, in the civil sphere, we have an endurance of five to six days. But again, if you go back to the earlier diagram and compare it with other UAVs, that's a tremendously larger capability than you can get from any other aircraft today. So one of the main, the main reason probably that we won that contract was because of the capability of the aircraft. I think the other reason was the engineering team at hybrid air vehicles has decades of experience. We probably have more experience of lighter than air than any other engineering team around the world, although there are several others working on similar technologies. Um, And in summary, our engineering team has designed, built and certified for passenger flight over 20 airships. What we concluded uh, once we designed the the multi-hull or hybrid air vehicle was, all our attention should focus on the Airlander because it's such a game changer, as Chris has described, that we don't do classic monohull airships anymore. So, sorry, if you want a classic monohull airship, Zeppelin, NTO, a terrific company, go and have a chat with them. If you want something that can enter new markets and do things that other airships can't do, then we think we have the product for you. In the US military, the US Navy has always been the leading agency. They operated hundreds of airships during World War II, very successful anti-submarine capability. And they asked two things of us early in 2000. This is a a, a 45-foot prototype. They wanted to know that we could take off and land from water and that we could cope with all four engines failing. So at this point, we cut power to all four engines. The aircraft goes slightly pitch up. It's got great pendulum stability. And that's a crash landing. Tick and tick. The US Army obviously didn't want anything with a hovercraft landing system because their intent is something that's up in the air for three weeks, back down on the ground for one day, and then back up again. So a much simpler skid system. So again, this is another 45 prototype from the early 2000s. Very similar in design. And then in case the Marines get in the act, uh, then we need something that can hover. So we need something that's also be emulate the performance of a helicopter. So we devise for the rear engines this butterfly vane system, and that system there can deflect thrust vertically up, vertically down, to port starboard and combinations thereof. And then this is around about the 2009 era. This is inside the hangar, uh, hangar one at Cardington, where we now are. We now have that system applied to the back. We've got fully vectoring motors forward, and we're demonstrating at this stage under, uh, using just model airplane controls, a... uh, a manual pilot's ability to control that, and then as that rolled on into 2010, we made that fully autonomous. So working with some of our partners in the UK, we now have the ability to conduct an airborne hover with the technology. Now you've got the first flight, you can see this on our website. You might have noticed a little bit of roll instability on the first amphibious takeoff, what we learned from that, and this is a patented feature, is that we needed to put strakes down the side of the aircraft to take that out, so that we now have an extremely stable uh, aircraft, so you don't suffer from any pitched instability roll instability. It's very, very stable aircraft. So any kind of application where, at the moment, vibration and other effects are a problem for what you're trying to do in the air, this would be an exceedingly good platform. You can see at this point the butterfly vanes at the back transitioning into the normal cruciform position, which is thrust forward from the thrust up. It's hard to see it in this one, but the forward engines there were vectored slightly up. It's a little bit easy to see here in the landing. So you can now see the forward engines are vectored down. Um, The butterfly vanes at the rear are operating to give us vectored thrust down. So this this was uh, a 90 minute flight. Um, very successful, um, and it, it, the, all that data we now have ITAR-free, so that's invaluable to us. So we're pretty confident we had a technology lead when we started this programme, because we didn't win it because we're small and British. Um, having had the benefit of all that experience, we're very confident that we have the best hybrid of air te- technology available. The existing aircraft, in summary, the Airlander 10, you can see the parameters here. The design we've also produced and submitted to yasa for cargo operations is the Airlander 50. It's a little bit longer. It's a tri-hull rather than a bi-hull, so volume-wise in terms of the volume of the hull it's about three times the volume size. We've designed it so it can go uh, a little bit faster, um, and you can actually fit uh, shipping containers, ISO containers, in a three-by-two configuration inside that aircraft. We don't, We essentially see... Airlander 10 has been ideally designed for surveillance, endurance-type operations, whereas the Airlander 50 is really for heavy lift in remote applications. But there may well be a little bit of blending between the two. We're at a point where we've designed something new, and we're not quite sure what it would be best at. We've designed the Airlander 10 for a, against a particular specification, and we will meet that specification with a second aircraft. Now that it is a civil aircraft and we're allowed to discuss it pretty openly, we are very interested in anybody's ideas about what you think we should be using the Airlander 104. 10 for. There's some ideas on the screen, so the obvious one starts with surveillance. Um, Chris was talking about the Archimedes principle. One of the obvious consequences of that is we float on water, we can land in transitional ice. If you're not sure whether you can land, the ice isn't very thick. You can't land a helicopter on it, it's rather problematic to get an icebreaker in. We can land and we will float on that transitional phase. So there are a number of things, and uh, a fixed-wing aircraft might get there faster and identify someone that needs search and rescue, but it can't land. We can, like the helicopter, go there, do the search with a greater endurance and range than the helicopter can ever have, and conduct the rescue as well. So we have applicability in search and rescue. Geological surveying. You can imagine if you put an electromagnetic coil around the equator of the aircraft and use the 460 kilowatts available from the aircraft, your ampere turns are going to be much higher than are available on fixed-wing aircraft or helicopters, flying VTEM type technology underneath. So the ability to survey the Earth, to look for aquifers or minerals or, or indications for oil and gas much more capable than any other type of aircraft available today, and an hourly cost, which is comparable with a, a small helicopter or a, a modest fixed-wing aircraft. Um, the military application is fairly obvious. Any kind of surveillance to do with crowd monitoring or patterns of life monitoring obviously would be very effective. Um, and looking forward, uh, we think we will have applications in each of these markets, um, but. Uh, during the question and answer session we look forward very much to your suggestions as well as your questions uh, Next year we're under CA oversight using experimental flight conditions or B conditions We'll be completing the flight test program and we'll be flying out of the uh, Cardington airfield initially We've got a 200 hour test flight program to complete once we've done that, we're then are able to conduct operational demonstrations. So if a GA survey company wants to fit their kit and do some geo serving, we can do it. If someone wants to do a, a search and rescue demonstration, we can do it, etc. And we should be able to do that from the latter half of next year. Um, the the Airlander 50 at the moment is not actually under build. We're going to complete the build and flight testing of the 10 first, uh, uh, but we will have the Airlander 50 ready for service by 2019. If you're personally interested, if this kind of floats your boat and you'd like to help us, then we have a club. Um, So if you go onto the website, airlander.co.uk, you can join the club. We'll keep you up to date. And the kind Chris might even arrange for you to be one of those that undertakes one of the first flights in a passenger cabin version of the Airlander 10.
0: Thank you very much.